Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 45, Mima Mounds. Thank you for listening. Well, not only thank you for listening, but thank you for all the feedback. The previous show, I kind of said I'm back and I'm going to continue with the audio podcast, and I was asking for specific feedback from many of you, and I got dozens and dozens of emails sent to nick at geology.cwu.edu. So sincere thanks to those that took the time to send me a couple paragraphs, actually, and talk about how you listen to the podcast, uh, how it helps you, and I had a specific question about whether I should take all these live streams that I've been doing during the pandemic from mid-March until the end of June. There's 75 of those live streams. And I was asking your opinion on whether I should use some of that content or all of that content on this audio podcast uh, feed. And you maybe could guess that uh, people were all over the place. Everything ranging from, uh, yeah, I didn't watch any of those live streams, and I'd like to hear all of them, all 75 of them. And some of them are two hours long? Sure. Load them on up. Sounds good to me. Uh, The other end of the spectrum. What, are you crazy? I mean, you already did it. I mean, it's all there. I, I watched some of them. I didn't watch all of them, but come on. This is a holy totally different thing here with this audio podcast. So why would you even consider putting these live streams on this, uh, on this feed and, and things in between? So this is an episode on the Mima Mounds, and I am going to use one of the live streams that I did. And um, I think I'll continue in other words, I'm going to kind of uh, split the difference between those two end members. I'm going to grab some of the live streams that I think are particularly unique. In other words, if I've done any of the content already on this geology podcast, the Nick Sentner Geology Podcast, I'm not going to uh, use that live stream stuff. In other words, I don't want to duplicate what I've already done in this series. Uh, But I have heard from enough of you that many of you just like listening. You don't really want to sit down and watch. You want to do something else. You want to drive to work and listen to this podcast. You want to go for walks or runs and listen to this podcast. You want to tinker in the garden or do the dishes or whatever. And that's really how I listen to podcasts as well. I don't just sit there and, and, and listen in rapt attention. I, I like to be doing something else. Um, and because of that, and because many of you uh, have asked for some of this live stream content to be included in audio form, not video, but just the audio portion, uh, in other words, the audio version of those live streams, I'm going to grab some of them. I don't know how many I'll do this way, but um, there's new content. I haven't touched it any other place, and I think it's worth at least trying this. And if I hear from enough of you going, oh, that was ridiculous. I mean, it it was a live stream. You know, you were talking to a crowd uh, in video form, live, so it didn't work. Unless I hear that from a lot of you, it didn't work. I'll probably continue because I actually listened to this one kind of with my eyes closed. And um, I, I thought for the most part it works. Of course, there are some cases where I'm holding up photos of Mima Mounds and uh, not really describing what I'm seeing because, you know, I'm, I'm showing the audience. So there's, a, there's an occasional awkward uh, portion where you're not going to get the full uh, experience. But, but most of it uh, works, uh, I think. And I, I guess uh, if I don't hear from you, I'll assume it's working for you too. If you really hate it, then uh, please send me an email and I will uh, embrace your hate. Uh, so without much further ado, I'd like to get into this. Um, if you are familiar with the live streams, uh, a series called Nick From Home, I always start with 15 minutes of just kind of pre-show, I ended up calling that, where I'm just talking to, I'm greeting people, I'm 
thanking people for gifts and all that sort of thing. So I've obviously cut that out from what you're about to hear. Uh, also, because I don't really know how to do it, um, I just lopped off the end. Uh, I lopped off the cozy fort. I lopped off the live Q&A. What I don't know how to do yet, I'm in GarageBand, and I don't know how to um, kind of break the audio clip into two parts and then kind of erase some stuff in between the two parts. I'll figure it out, but I, I, I couldn't figure it out a few minutes ago. So I'm just going to uh, I cut off the front, I cut off the back, and even with that, I think this thing's more than 45 minutes long. Uh, but the Mima Mounds, if you've never heard of them, are uh, one of the unsolved mysteries of the Pacific Northwest. And they exist beyond the Pacific Northwest. But uh, it's a topic I always kind of went, yeah, I don't know. Nobody knows the answers, so why even bother? But uh, listening back to what I did, I, I was kind of pleased with it, to be totally honest. Um, starting with describing what I do with uh, field trips. Uh, with beginning students and emphasizing um, observation in the field and keeping that separate from interpretation. And I try to use that model with describing these Mima Mounds. And as you'll hear, we still don't know the answer for why these Mima Mounds exist. So that's enough of a preamble to this show. I hope that you enjoy this program on Mima Mounds that was recorded this spring. I didn't even think to look up the date. Um, what you will hear for the rest of this episode is me talking into an iPhone live with a, uh, an audience around the world. Uh, but uh, hope you get something out of this anyway. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning to you all. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to my backyard. I'm a geology teacher at the college in town. I've been doing these live streams for quite a few weeks now during this global pandemic. And we continue this morning with a discussion of Mima mounds. So I've been coached up in the last few days. I've heard both Mima and Mima, Mima and Mima from various different people here in Washington. But I've been assured from the Olympia people and we're, uh, we're going to a specific place, at least to start with this morning. Here's my backyard in Ellensburg, Washington. Here's Seattle, that's a two hour drive up and over the Cascades, that's Snoqualmie Pass. You know, we've talked about many of these things in this series. Here's the state capital of Olympia. And to the southwest of Olympia is a little nature preserve, a natural preserve, Mima Mounds something or other. It's not a state park, but it's land that's been set aside because of these unusual Mima mounds. So my first point is that I'm saying Mima this morning, and if you've heard Mima, um, I'm not saying it's incorrect, but the locals here say Mima, so we're saying Mima, damn it. Okay, Mima mounds. Now, I've got a couple of preamble comments for us this morning to set the stage for our discussion, and then we'll get right into it. The first comment is... Uh, by now you know that I teach Geology 101 and have been every academic term for 30 years. And uh, so I have experience dealing with 19-year-old kids, and I have experience with them in the field. Uh, we live in such an amazing area here in Ellensburg that within our two-hour lab periods, they're literally just two hours long, they meet once a week, depending on the week, we have four field trips that we can cram into a two-hour window. Like we got the two vans outside the building. We say, good morning. Here we go. Jump in the vans. Here we go. We drive 15 minutes, 10 minutes out to a field site. Uh, we spend our hour plus out there. And then by the time we're back to campus, they're ready to hit their, their class two hours later, their next class in their schedule. So my point is there's been a lot of work with 19-year-olds from all parts of Washington that have no real interest in science, certainly not any interest in geology. And one of the main things we do on those field trips, whether it's up on Menashtash Ridge or down in the Yakima River Canyon or out towards Thorpe with the volcanic mud flows or at the base of Craig's Hill, doesn't matter what the topic is, our main uh, goal for those students is when we're in the field, we separate data 
from interpretation. That is crucial. And it doesn't come naturally to people. Like, we want to be real disciplined in our work when we're out there during that short little one-hour field trip when we're actually at the site. And we say, okay, our first 15 minutes is nothing but observations. Just think like a second grader, just observe things with your eyes, write things down, you know, those some props and they've got to fill out a little chart or whatever, or they have to sketch a little outcrop of something. But the point is those first 10, 15 minutes of their hour when they're at the field site is dedicated solely to writing down, measuring, or breaking rocks open, carefully studying what's inside. And that is totally separate from the storytelling. Data, observations, interpretation or ideas on what we can dream up creatively to explain the data. But we have to make sure that our ideas fit the data. And this is a theme you've heard, if you're, if you're regular with me, you've heard that regularly. I can't emphasize that enough. And so I mentioned this pretty carefully this morning because the fun part of this discussion will be coming up with ideas to explain these mounds. But we're not gonna start with the ideas. And that's my other part of this preamble. I won't do too much on this, but I feel like I wanna say it. When that 19 year old jumps out of the van and they're excited and they, they're actually into it now. They're surprised, but it's like week four and they're ready to go. And as soon as they're getting out of the van, they're surveying the scene, they're looking at a couple things and in about 3.5 seconds, they go, oh, lava flow with a big flood that made this canyon. In other words, I don't know, maybe they're just screwing with me, but they jump right to the interpretation. And the fact that they actually vocalize it. We got our group of 20 students. And you know, they're kind of a loud mouth and they're just going, oh yeah, yeah, this and this and this. And quite often they're not screwing with me, they're genuinely excited and they can see the story within less than a minute of being out there. And that's dangerous for this particular reason. They have attached themselves to their story. Like that's the first thing they did. Boom, lava flows and a flood. And then for the rest of the time we're out there, this guy, it's typically men do this by the way. So this guy is like constantly like defensive now. Like if somebody's talking about something that's not a lava flow, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. My idea was the lavas and you graft on to this idea and you don't let go. I think that's human nature. And so suddenly the people, let's call him Tyler, Tyler's in this story now, suddenly. And Tyler's, you know, defending to the death his idea of the lava and the, and the flood. Even though we're all trying to just collect our data first and then trying to come up with as many different possible ideas. So I think you hear what I'm saying. Even in geology conferences or professional geology field trips, feels like people are putting themselves into it too much. And they're not really being objective because they've already kind of figured it out and they're blind to anything else. So I don't know, maybe you've already left a comment on, you know about the Mima Mounds and you have the answer and you've got your idea. So you've already kind of done what Tyler does when he's jumping out of the van. All I'm asking is that we have a scientific discussion and all I mean by that is that we separate our data from our interpretation, okay? And last thing to say, nobody knows the interpretation. People have been looking at these mounds for 150 years easily, and nobody's figured it out. So if you're, you know, if you're in the UK and you got your popcorn, a little bit of whatever, and you're ready to kind of wait and wait and wait, and then you get the payoff in the end, it's not coming. Nobody's been convincing with the right kind of data or nobody's come up with the best explanation, the best interpretation to fit all of the data that we have. Okay, I gotta say one more thing. I, I know you wanna get rolling, but I gotta say one more thing. It's common for those that don't, don't latch onto one eye, so the anti-Tylers, and they're weighing all these different ideas, and then when the field trip's done, it's common 
for geologists or whoever to say, well, you know, it's probably just a combination of factors. You know, the earth is complicated and it's probably a combination. And that always feels wrong to me. First of all, it just probably not an equal combination of tons of factors. There's got to be one driving factor to explain these things we're about to talk about. But the other part of it is back to the human nature part. You know, you watch a movie and it's a, it's a, it's a murder mystery and, and they start the movie with this, there's the dead body, there's the dead guy in, in the floor of the pantry. He's dead. And there's a big old hole in his chest, you know. It's obviously a bullet went into his chest. The guy's dead bullet hole in his chest. And then you're, you know, okay, well, I wonder if we can figure out who did it. Who's the killer? And you know, oh, what? Oh, oh that, oh yeah, butler, uh-huh, yeah, the, the, the babysitter. And by the end of the movie, after all the evidence and all the, 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 the detective work has been done, what does the detective say? Look into the camera and go, well, it's a combination of things, you know. He did have, he ate a lot of potato chips and had a lot of stress at that uh, law firm. So kind of a combination of things that, that killed him. It's like, how about the hole in the, in the chest? How about the gun? So. Uh, 10 minutes of that. Wasn't planning on that. Here we go. Data, mama mounds, interpretation, bunch of ideas. Okay, let's say you're in Scotland, you're in Switzerland, you're in Japan, you're like, I have no idea what we're talking about. Well, here's what the mounds look like. And you're like, isn't that some sort of computer image? Yeah, it is. They really look like that? Yeah, they do. Here's a beautiful image from the Washington Geological Survey beautiful LIDAR imagery and art, Daniel Coe. I've talked about him on past live streams. So this is a real image of a place called Thurston County. And it's a prairie. I mean, that looks like goosebumps on your arm, or that looks like the skin of a pigskin. I spent 20 minutes looking for a football this morning. I couldn't find it. Okay. So we're going here to the Mima Mounds, and we're really talking about these mounds that look like this. Let's keep going with data. I'm trying to keep all the ideas and the interpretations away for a while. Oh, you want a real photo from a drone? Okay, we can do that. So obviously people are interested. <laughs> like, what is the story? And for a few years, I've tried to get our producers of the PBS show to do a Mima Mound show, because people always ask about them. And they're like, I don't know, what, what could I, you know, all I have to show is this. Like the videographers, like, I, I need a variety of things. I need kind of, you know, grand scenery. And this, uh, what am I going to do? I'm going to show this for five minutes? And, uh, and when you go to the Mima Mounds area, the park, I'll just call it the park, they even have a little visitor center that's shaped like a Mima Mound. Isn't that cute? So you look at some kiosks in here. You can go up the staircase and kind of get up at least a little bit and see a number of these, uh, these mounds. We're still just getting introduced, especially if you've never been to these Mima Mounds. And I'm still, so far, just at this star, but we'll be going elsewhere in just a bit. These Mima Mounds are not just at that star. But here's in uh, Bates McGee's uh, wonderful old classic textbook, page 303. This is from 1970. And beautiful aerial shot before drones. So I guess this is from an airplane or something. Hot air balloon. Okay, that's our topic. That's what my mamans are. Uh, you're like, well, I don't live in western Washington. Maybe the mounds that I have here are what this guy's talking about this morning. 
So we call them Mima Mounds here in the Pacific Northwest. In California, apparently they're commonly called hog wallows. Or maybe you've got prairie mounds or pimple mounds or silt mounds. As far as I can tell, those are all kind of the same topic this morning. So if you'd rather have this be a prairie mound talk, then by all means. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm hesitating because I want to make sure we don't mix up our data from our interpretation. Uh, has anybody dug into these mounds to look at their compositional makeup? Yes. And unfortunately, Charles Wilkes came through in the 1840s and he's like, I think these are burial mounds. Let's get them, let's cut them open, see what's inside. Like that's offensive on so many levels, but it was a different time. So they weren't burial mounds. He dug into three and since then people have used ground penetrating radar and other kinds of ways to look inside to excavate some of these mounds and there's no evidence of humans, um, they're not burial mounds. So he goes to the whiteboard just once I think this morning and the sun will continue to move. I know I got this big shadow coming through here, but that, that'll move on us. Um, yeah, you can really see the shadow now. So here's my attempt to give you a feeling for the dimension of these things and a couple other pieces of data. Now, I think I need to say right off the bat that what I've got on the whiteboard is the best way to portray what the Mima Mounds look like on Mima Prairie, southwest of Olympia. But I feel like I need to say, oh, you know what I'll do? If I can find it. Yep. Yeah. The Mima Mounds or Pimple or Prairie or Hog Wallows or whatever. Here's a map that might cool your jets a little bit if you've got a, a favorite idea already, if you're a Tyler. Um, so here's a map of the U.S., the lower 48 states, and the areas that have these mounds. So this is still data, but in addition to Mima, Eastern Washington, I mean, this is out in the channeled scablands, the Great Valley of California, San Diego area, and even the lower Mississippi Valley. Now, I'm from Wisconsin, we have burial mounds there. Truly burial mounds, truly archeological. But, and I'm jumping to interpretation just a bit, but I, I, I shouldn't do that, sorry. So, so here's the areas that have been carefully mapped where we have these repetitive mounds, okay? So, I'm showing you the data from here and I've got some slightly different data from the channeled scablands of Eastern Washington, but I admit right now, I don't know much about how the mounds might be different in these other areas. And you might, if, if you're from those areas and you know quite a bit more about them, just data-wise, maybe you can contribute a little bit to us. Or, now that I think about it, if you are on other continents, and as we continue to kind of look at the data here, and you think you've got some mounds, that would be very fun, I think. Uh, for us to read about your mounds if you feel like they've got the right dimensions and some of the other things I'm about to share. So this could be a fun benefit of a worldwide Q&A or a worldwide live chat situation where we can actually kind of learn from you because most of the literature I've found is, 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 is Western North America specific. Although I have heard that there are some mounds and uh, Argentina, like out on the Pampas, is that what you, how you call it? Pampas? in uh, South Africa, apparently, but I, I, I don't know what I'm talking about now. So that'd be fun if you, if you have visited or you live in a place on another continent that has some of these. Okay, so back to this. Uh, I'm not going to be bothered by the, the shade. Uh, I, I am bothered, but I'm going to ignore it, and hopefully you can too. The shadow, I mean. So basically, here's more data for you that on the Mima Prairie, the mounds themselves uh, average about four feet high and 40 feet across. 
Now there's pretty wide variability here. And you're like, well, I, ours are five feet. Ours are three feet. Ours are 50 feet. Okay, all right, I got it. But I just picked a nice um, average number for height and width to give you a feeling. And the shape is quite usually about this shape. In Western Washington, there is almost always a kind of gravel and cobble substrate. So it's not bedrock. It's a bunch of, it's hundreds, it's tens of feet at least, maybe hundreds of feet of, of coarse gravel and river cobbles. Trying to stay away from interpretation, that's coming. But the mounds are not typically made out of those river cobbles or gravels. They're typically in Western Washington made out of fine sand or silt. And I'm gonna show you a picture right now to show that these mounds have a very dark, when you cut one open, since we know they're not burial mounds, when you cut them open, there's a, a real dark black compared to the, the color here. So I couldn't show that on my whiteboard, but this is basically black versus light tan. Let's look at that right away before I forget. Here's another book to put in your library. I forget if I've already plugged this one, but Dave Tucker is a wonderful fellow. He's been in Bellingham most of his life. He's taught occasionally at the university, Western Washington University, but uh, uh, he's had a blog for years and um, does public field trips, public lectures, and uh, knows a lot about Western Washington in particular. And I, I know I did show you this before because I showed you what I think is an amazing uh, front back cover uh, illustration showing Rainier erupting and Lahars coming down. I think we should do a Lahars in Western Washington show. Just had that thought right now, but I think that might work. Um, so I mentioned D Dave's book because he's got a full chapter. I think he calls them vignettes, but he's got a chapter, vignette number six is Enigma on the Prairie the Mima Mounds, and it's well done. Uh, uh, I, I was trying to cobble a bunch of stuff together last night on my own, and then I got to Dave's chapter. I'm like, oh God, it's all right here. This is great. So good job to you, Dave. Uh, Paul Kane, who is a Canadian landscape painter, I think I talked about him briefly with St. Helens uh, back in the 1840s. Paul Kane was, was traveling through. He visited the Mima Mounds in 1847. Here's an interesting painting of the mounds. But what I really wanted to show you, and I'm skipping over some wonderful cartoons that Dave has about the ideas, the interpretations, which we'll get to in a second. Here, Stephen Slaughter, former student here at Central in this, po in this photo. So I like this photo for a number of reasons. I'm really hoping to get it in focus now. So here's Stephen, who's 6'2", and they didn't excavate this, or maybe they did, but there is this excavated Mima Mound that you can get to on the prairie. So you can see it's kind of jet black in the mound itself. And if I can push my luck here on focus, I really can't tell how I'm doing on focus. But there are some cobbles in amongst the fine sand and silt in the dark stuff. But then here's this kind of gravelly cobbly substrate. But Dave, I don't know if you can read his text here. But Dave says, look out, look at these kind of, what is he, you can read it better than I, I can't remember what he said, four inches to a foot maybe. It's like, they're not roots, but they look like these kind of little wedges that are going down into the cobbly substrate. Is that, a, is that an important clue as to how these mounds at least get started? Okay. Uh, 
So I tried to show that just a little bit with my sketch because I was intrigued by that, and maybe you are too. So that's why I did these little guys kind of after the fact. So at least that one mound on the Mima Prairie has not a perfectly sharp boundary, but there's a little bit of these places where that kind of organic, rich, silty stuff is, is, is coming down. So in between the mounds, so there's another mound right over here, right? Another mound that you, you saw them spaced. Uh, it's just gravel. So silty mound, no silt, just gravel. And then next silty mound, next silty mound, etc. Well, guess who was visiting the Mima Mounds in 1911? Jay Harlan Bretz. So, I mean, these, these live streams are turning into a, a love fest every time for either Tom Foster or Jay Harlan Bretz or both. Uh, we will eventually get to a topic where we don't talk about Bretz, like tomorrow, I suppose. I guess. Maybe I'll even throw it in tomorrow. But uh, for those uh, that aren't aware, J. Harlan Bretz is a very important geology figure here, and he did most of his field work back in the 19-teens, the 1920s. I'm not sure I've shared this chronology with you, but Bretz grew up in Michigan, was a high school teacher in Michigan, uh, came out to Seattle to teach high school for a few years, and he was visiting the Mima Mounds with his high school students. He had a hiking club, kind of a Boy Scout group called the Peripatetics. And he took these boys, these high school boys on weekend walks where they would literally go like 20 miles in a day. And uh, they're just walking all over the place. You know, you can't just jump in a car in 1908, for instance. And then he went on to greater fame at the University of Chicago. But um, from that, those four years, from those three or four years of high school teaching in Seattle, Bretz was compiling all this wonderful field data from the Puget Lowland. And when he went to the University of Chicago, his PhD dissertation was on the glacial deposits of Puget Lowland. I'm not saying the Mima Mounds are from glaciers, right? Just sharing where Bretz's observations come from. So this is a wonderful publication. If you can find it online, I think you can. Uh, there's a hard copy in our university library. 1913, J. Harlan Bretz, Glaciation of the Puget Sound Region. And even though this was his PhD dissertation, oh, Bijou's playing with the cozy fort. Hey, don't do that. Playing with our uh, black quilt. Oh, there he goes. Uh, so anyway, so here's a classic shot. Love this photo. Bretz took out his little brownie or whatever the camera was in 1911 and here's some of his high school students walking across the Mima Mounds on the Mima Prairie. They were just putting in roads at the time so they're they're putting a couple roads right through some of these Mima Mounds. Are you getting impatient? Come on now we got to be disciplined. Uh, you know that I'm a fan of Brett's for many reasons including how he uh, uses good writing to describe his field observations. You know, lots of field data is just kind of boring, like stats and that sort of thing. But he had a flair for even describing his observations. So I'm going to hunt through some of his text and share some of his observations of the Mima Mounds with you. The mounds occur on outwash... Well, the mounds occur on gravel. Mounds attain their best development on nearly plain gravel surfaces. So he says the landscape needs to be very flat to form the best mounds. Does that mean that the gravel needs to be flat? The landscape needs to be flat to get the best mounds. Steeply sloping areas are commonly moundless. The mounds have a regularity of form that is remarkable. In the hundreds of acres of the mound prairies, there are but few exceptions to the general form of a spherical segment. Mounds in any one locality are nearly uniform in size. There are nowhere large mounds scattered in an area of small mounds. I mean, these are basic observations, but some of them you don't kind of think carefully enough to actually write down. At least I don't. There is almost invariably an accumulation of cobbles or pebbles on the surface among 
no, sorry, uh, sorry. There's cobbles or pebbles on the surface uh, among the mounds, surrounding the mounds. I read that incorrectly. Here's a hand-drawn uh, view from the air. Brett's must have done with a India ink. He's finding some cobbles within the mounds themselves, but most of the mounds are made of finer grain stuff. All prairies of the region bear a surficial black silt. In the mounds, the silt has accumulated to a thickness as great as the mound height, and in places greater, so that it forms a lens-shaped accumulation, while between the mounds, the silt is thin or non-existent. The mounds are structureless, that's an important observation. There's no layering that you see inside of one of these Mima mounds. It's just a batch of stuff. Okay, for those that are impatient, I'm about done with my observations. Just for fun, here's the, the geologic map of Puget Lowland from Brett's dissertation uh, from 1913. So he's mapping where the glacial the terminal moraine is, the outwash plains. So I, we're, we're, we're grading now into our interpretation topic and we are very close. Good morning. We are very close to the edge of the ice. So you wanna lean a little bit towards the fun part? We're done with the boring part. We're into the fun part and maybe you've now got your idea, your favorite idea. And I don't know, have you done it already? If you haven't done it already, and you've already done some thinking about these MIMA mounds, what's your favorite idea? Do I want to do that? Yeah, why not? It's time to be Tyler, okay? You, you're different than Tyler already. You, you've, 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 you've gotten a bunch of different field data. Not only the, the distribution of these MIMA mounds across the Western US, but, oh, I know, I'm sorry, I got one more piece of data. I'm sorry, one more piece of data. The work we've done in the last 50 years or so was trying to get a date on these mounds. What do we know? What data do we have about the, the age of the mounds? Can we find some carbon material, some organic material in the mounds? Can we get an age on some charcoal or some plant material or some volcanic ash? And Yes, the answer is yes. We've been able to get datable material in the mounds or on top of the mounds or below the mounds even. And the main message is there's lots of different dates, but they're all younger than 10,000 years. So these are mounds that are forming after the ice left. So because of that, because we have no Mima mounds where there's glacial till, or where we're definitely underneath an alpine or an, a continental glacier, we got to get rid of that. No mounds where we have glacial till. Now, the last piece of observation uh, comes one more time, Bruce Bjornstad, book two on the Trail of the Ice Age Floods, The Northern Reaches, page 83. Uh, it's best just to read this to you. One of the most visible and curious features of the channeled scablands. So the channeled scablands are in eastern Washington. We're not on the chalkboard now. We're out where the Missoula floods were happening. Um, are the regularly spaced hillocks called Mima Mounds. So there's thousands of Mima Mounds in eastern Washington and in eastern Oregon, I might add. But, but Bruce, is, uh, Bruce and Jean are talking about uh, eastern Washington. The circular, measle-like bumps range up to several tens of feet wide and several feet high. Within the channeled scabland of eastern Washington, they generally form where there is a thin cover of loose rubble and wind-blown silt. This is the loose silt now, the kitchen flower. Overlying, flat-lying, rocky basalt bedrock. Okay, let me put that on hold. So this is from a science paper on the mounds. And here's more data now. So we were looking at the whiteboard that I drew for you is here in Western Washington. There's our mounds on top of a gravelly substrate. 
Bruce is now describing uh, Mima mounds in eastern Washington that are sitting directly on top of the German chocolate cake. There is no gravelly uh, substrate generally. And apparently in California, they've got kind of a clay hard pan beneath the Mima mounds, and I can't hold it. There are Mima mounds on top of Menashtash Ridge. I'm pointing to them right now. So there are beautiful Mima mounds up at Shanico, Oregon. That's a fam fa favorite place of mine. Or on top of Menashtash Ridge, where we're a thousand feet the valley floors, a thousand feet above the valley floors, and we are on, on steep slopes. And the mounds are not perfectly spherical, but they kind of have a lopsided look. And uh, on LIDAR, those mounds kind of look like teardrops coming down uh, a steep desert ridge. Okay, back to Bruce. I think it's really important to go through this, this factual information, these observations. Do you agree? I hope so. Because if, if we have our storytelling and our, our I think it's this, I think it's that, it's not based on anything except your emotions. We don't need that. We don't need your emotions this morning. The Mima Mounds in eastern Washington are composed mostly of silt. The mounds can also occur atop flood bars, underlined with thick piles of coarse gravel and sand. So there's kind of truly silt mounds. And by the way, up on Menashtash, they're mostly silt mounds. So therefore, the, the vegetation is different. There's, there's beautiful flowers and grasses on the silt mounds, but then surrounding it, there's kind of a rocky apron surrounding almost like it looks like somebody put some of them are like perfect like masonry bricks going around but it's totally natural so out in eastern washington we have silt mounds and then we also have mounds that occur atop flood bars underlain with thick piles of coarse gravel and sand i just said that however they are most abundant upon the flood swept basalt plateaus and coulees of the channeled scablands in contrast, they are rarely observed in the loose-covered Palouse Hills. No Mima mounds where we have the rolling hills of kitchen flour. In fact, these Mima mounds are best preserved in high-energy flood-swept areas, indicating that developed since the last Missoula floods around 15,000 years ago. Had the mounds developed before the last floods, they would have been wiped out by the flood erosion or severely molded and streamlined by flood water, which is definitely not the case. One more paragraph and then we're going to the ideas. I find this fascinating and I haven't seen this anywhere else. Recent investigations by archeologists discovered in, in a Native American campfire hearth beneath a Mima mound in the vicinity of Eskier Ranch. Several radiocarbon dates of the hearth indicate that it was used as recently as 500 years ago. The oldest radiocarbon date is 1,710 years ago. Because the mounds lie above the campfire hearth, the mound has to be younger than the campfire hearth and thus suggest that some Mima mounds may only be a few hundred years old. If this is the case, wind, one of the few active geologic processes still affecting the scablands, may play a major role in development of Mima mounds via trapping wind-blown silt, like the Luss on top of the St. Helens Ash we did on our field trip on Thursday night. Trapping of wind-blown silt, Luss, by vegetation. Mounds may initiate as loose. Okay, we're into an interpretation now. Okay, so there's dates ranging from 10,000 years old for the mounds down to apparently possibly just a few hundred years old. Okay, so it's 9.38. It's almost like I'm strategically stalling so we don't have to do question and answer because I got to say, I'm going to give you all I got. I, I, don't, I don't know if I can answer any questions. We'll try it, but I mean, you're going to be asking a bunch of stuff. I'm like, oh, sounds like a good idea. Don't know, don't know, don't know. So we're finally to the part that you've probably been waiting for. I haven't been stalling. So let's do this in dramatic fashion. First of all, let's find the sheet. 
I wrote out, I mean, there's, there's truly dozens of different ideas for why the Mima found, mounds exist. And if you're a combination of many different ideas, that's fine. But you know, I, I want to look, I want the gun. I want, I want, I want the gun. So originally the thought was burial mounds. And then we dug into some of the burial mounds. I've already commented on that. No evidence of human burials. Okay. Are these mounds a de depositional story where you have something growing and the things that are growing are just kind of naturally spaced apart from each other. And then when you have a bunch of loose or windblown stuff, or I guess you can bring stuff in by water, uh, does, the, does that vegetation, whether they're grasses or trees even, do they act as an anchor then to allow all this stuff to kind of pile up in this conical form? surrounding the vegetation, which reminds me, I got to go back to Brett's. So the publication is 1913. So Brett's is talking to a farmer who has farmed at the Mima Prairie his whole life. One far this is Brett's writing. One farmer who lived on Mima Prairie for many, many years is convinced that the mounds which bear clumps of the stunted oak common to the gravelly soil are increasing in height. The farmer stated that in leveling the mounds for a roadway, the horses plunged knee deep repeatedly in the gravel and silt after the sodded surface of the mounds had been broken. Inferring from this that the mounds are hollow and they're hollow because there used to be tree roots that has since decayed. So the farmer, using some logic, thought that every mound was where there used to be a big oak tree and the tree is gone and the root ball has, has, has decayed away and so the mounds are hollow. We know now that they're not hollow. But the idea that, that we're, we're concentrating these silty mounds, especially in places that we have vegetation kind of anchoring things and not letting the wind uh, have that stuff get blown away. So that's an approach to say that the mounds are depositional anchored by the vegetation. Kind of similar to that, but different. Uh, the thought is maybe the mounds, where we have all the mounds, so sediment trap, the idea is, is it possible that every one of the mounds used to be the opposite? Like originally, where we have mounds, we had depressions, like wet little sinkhole type things. But they were wet, and so sediment coming into the area were kind of naturally being uh, filled by the sediment. And then once we start those, those depressions get filled with sediment, then the sediment just gets piled higher and higher. It's a preferential place to drop sediment. So it's kind of a weird thing where the mounds were originally the places where we had depressions, sediment traps, in other words. I got a few more. Have we got to your favorite yet? Frost polygons. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to read these papers because each new generation of geologists, you know, you got a young gun hole people is like, oh, they haven't figured it out. I'll go out and figure it out. This can't be that hard. And, and through the years, then there's kind of pet kind of, it's almost like fashion. You know, there's a certain kind of idea out there that's everybody's talking about. And back in the fifties and sixties, it was freeze and thaw what we call paraglacial, meaning we're close to a glacier. We're not under the ice, but we're next door to where a big glacier was. And we have some sort of uh, repetitive freezing and thawing, like cracks in the permafrost up in the Arctic, for instance. And that this is just kind of forming mounds because we keep doing this cracking and, and freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing. Uh, a proponent of that, at least early on, was Marty Katz, who was my neighbor for a long time. Uh, Marty was a longtime uh, geography professor here at Central, started in 1952 
and was still actively uh, going to his office and participating in talks and going to many of our talks uh, well into his 90s. So truly my next door neighbor, right, right behind the shed. And if you're looking to read about Marty's work, Martin Katz, K-A-A-T-Z, K-A-A-T-Z, Martin, uh, he called them Menashtash Mounds. So he was focused primarily on our Mima Mounds that were not in Western Washington, but just to the south of Ellensburg. And if you zoom around on, on Google Maps or Google Earth, especially uh, Menashtash, just north of Umtanum Creek, you'll find these amazing Mima Mounds. And I don't think I have enough time. I was thinking about doing it, zooming around on Google Maps with you. But go to Shanico. Shanico's classic little kind of ghost towny kind of a place in Eastern Oregon. It's right on US 97. If you know the drive, US 97 between Biggs Junction and uh, Madras, you know Shanico. And I don't know how many times I've been on field trips with my students and they're, oh, next time we stop for a restroom, they're like, what were all those mounds back there by Shanico? It's like, well, those are the Mima mounds. So you can go there and just see all these amazing, amazing mounds that again have these vegetation differences. What was I doing? Oh yeah, frost polygon. So we're back to Dave Tucker's book, which is a really excellent source for this discussion, including a couple of uh, homemade illustrations that he made that I think are wonderful. So he's saying, if you go up to the Arctic, you see these cracks. I'm really blind here right now. I can't tell you about the focus, so we'll hope for the best. So in a paraglacial setting, you're constantly cracking, freezing, thawing, freezing, thawing, and getting those patterns. And so the frost polygons idea to explain the mounds is that you do enough of this freezing and thawing to develop sediment that's separated from its neighbor. And then a picture is worth a thousand words, so you can kind of see eventually you melt the frost you get the polygon set up, and the Mima mounds are a result. Now, are we doing that in Louisiana? I don't know. Maybe we are. That's always the discussion, right? You, you, you kind of hear an idea, and then you go, okay, but how about San Diego? Oh, okay. Well, how about Olympia? Oh, okay. How about... Let's keep going. We do want to get to the Q&A, even though uh, I'm, I'm kind of half afraid of it this morning. How many more I got on my list? I got three more on my list. So far we got these, and you're gonna be pissed if your idea isn't on the list, but oh well, a little early to be pissed, isn't it? Oh, what? Never heard of that one, you say? Sun cups, who came up with that? Brett's. Again, Dave Tucker's book. Another homemade, Dave talks about how much time he spent with his computer trying to figure out how to make all his anime, all of his uh, uh, illustrations. Time well spent, Dave. Here's Brett's idea, although Brett's wasn't totally in love with it, but uh, it was a novel idea. The sun cup idea for Mima Mounds. You have some snow or ice, I guess. You melt the top of the snow or ice. You naturally form these cups. Somehow there's a bunch of sediment. I guess it's lust that gets blown into the cups. The snow or ice melts and you're left with the mounds. It's kind of similar to the sediment trap idea that you're actually trapping sediment when you have a a divot, and then where the divot was is now an actual mound. Hope that makes some sense to you. I, uh, before we leave Brett's and the idea of snow and ice, I need another waterlogged piece of paper here. So from Brett's work primarily, here's just the location 
I'm, I'm right into the sun now, so I can't even, I can only see like a reflection off the phone. So I, I really am kind of blind at the moment. Hopefully this is working for you. Um, so here are the Mima Mounds in the red circle. Here's the maximum extent of the Continental Glacier over Seattle. It got down to Tenino and places like that. There was a glacial lake, Carbon, apparently. I don't know anything about it. There was some draining of the glacial lake, kind of a smaller version of the Missoula floods, but just water draining out the Chehalis to the Pacific Ocean. And so those gravels are for sure, at least on the Mima Mound area, the Mima prairies and the other prairies of this area, the gravels are definitely uh, glacial outwash. And we got the mounds not where the ice was, but next door to where the ice was. We can go back and forth on each of these ideas. I mean, there's no, there was never any glaciers on top of uh, Monashtash Ridge or Shanico. There was never any ice right next door to many of the Mima Mounds in eastern Washington. You can start hopefully seeing why we don't have an answer. We don't have a winner. We got two more on the list. I want to tell you my favorite, but I guess I'm not going to. Wait for it. Wait for it. Oh. Now, you know I'm a geologist. I don't know anything about biology. That's my wife's game. But you talk to a lot of biologists and it's an open and shut case. Obviously, these are pocket gophers. I'm like, really? Oh, yeah. And one of the maps that I found last night shows the distribution of the Mima Mounds and the range of different species, if you call it that, of pocket gophers. This is another one that got soaked in the water bucket, but hopefully you can read it. I don't have a source for this, sorry. I was just, I was just Googling like crazy last night, going to YouTube, finding all sorts of Mima Mound videos. So there's a relationship here between the dark areas, I don't know, can you even see them? So the dark areas are the Mima Mound areas, and then all these colors are different kinds of pocket gophers. And the idea that these gophers make this mound is the fact that they're all trying to, I think, they're digging up wet soil and trying to get some dry soil. So they're all, all the mounds are where you kick the soil out of the wet muck and you create these nice kind of fluffy mounds to then live in, or I, I don't know anything about biology. But it's not a joke. There's many biologists, plenty of geologists, who say this is a pocket gopher story. All right, last one on my list, maybe not on yours. We continue to learn more and more about earthquakes in Western North America. We've made tremendous leap forward in discovering earthquake faults and getting a sense of the magnitudes of prehistoric earthquakes. And the basic message is with each decade, we have more and more sobering news about earthquake activity in Western North America. Is it possible that you take a bunch of sediment and you shake the crust 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 and is it possible for that sediment to naturally dance into these mounds? Does that sound crazy to you? Are there really earthquakes in the Mississippi Valley? Actually, there are. Are there really earthquakes in California? Actually, there are. Are there really earthquakes in the Pacific? Actually, there are. So that's what this paper is all about.
formation of MIMA mounds, a seismic hypothesis. This came out in 1990. So you know how this works. If you want clicks on uh, YouTube or whatever, or on the internet in general, you, you title your, your little thing, uh, Mima Mound uh, Mystery Solved, you know? And there's tons of those little traps, you know? And then you click on it and it's like, what? They don't, huh? So there's a lot of that sort of thing. Okay, Bijou is hungry, wants to get inside. We're going to the Cozy Ford. I got a few things for you, and then we'll go to your Q&A. Come on, Bijou, let's go.